This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Kirk gets roofied! Hello everybody, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show that's putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gepwin and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we got another fairly good episode. We're getting yeah. some weird, weirdly good ones in the final season. Yeah, I, I was, it's like... I was expecting much worse, and then suddenly, like, oh, this isn't so bad. Yeah, the description of this sounded weird and awful. Uh, it turns out I've seen a little bit of this before, but I didn't know what was going on, so yeah. <laughs> huh, I had never actually heard of this episode before, like, at all. It was a complete surprise. No, the, the main premise of it is impossible. I'll, I'll get into that later. <laughs> so this is an episode called Wink of an Eye. It was written by author Heinemann, based on a story by Gene L. Kuhn. Heinemann wrote three episodes of season three, as well as a lot of other shows um, going forward, and even won a, a daytime Emmy for his writing in 1983. Nice. So apparently we have, like, a really good, well-known writer for this one. Yeah, they got a couple more episodes coming up, uh, the, the Way to Eden and The Savage Curtain. Yes, I've never heard of either of those. So we've got a couple of guest stars this time. We have more, but they're mostly background characters. We've got kind of the main three, who are Kathy Brown playing Della. She was on a lot of other contemporary shows, like most of these guest star character actors were. She, uh, I think, started on Perry Mason. I went on to Bonanza and Wagon Train and that that sort of thing. She was, uh, I think, the, her one of her earliest credits in, back in 1955 was Big Town. Big Town. Okay. Big Town. Yes. <laughs> Never heard of that. But she she uh, was also in the Love Boat, like everyone else. <laughs> also, we have Jason Evers who plays Ral. Rails. Yeah. Ral. Rail. Ral. Royal. I know someone who goes by that name, but they pronounce it you know, a certain way, and I'm not sure that's the way that everyone else pronounces it. So now They originally started on Broadway, later moved to Hollywood, and were also on Perry Mason, that are apparently best remembered for their role in the film The Brain That Wouldn't Die. Oh, yeah. I've heard of that. As have I. I've never seen it, but I've heard of it. So maybe we should look at that at some point. Oh, those weird B-movies. I haven't done any of the contemporary B-movies. I'm very tempted to for my next pick, but I also got some other things I want to poke at. So, <laughs> And finally, we have Jeffrey Benny playing Compton, who's one of the lower ranking officers on the ship. I think that he was a lieutenant or ensign or something. Forget uh, I, th now. I think he's a crewman Is in he? my notes. Oh, okay. Yeah. They don't mention him very often. He's just there. Uh, would, you, would you say that he's prone to scattering? Compton scattering? Get it? Get it? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> i took like one physics class in school and was very bad at it don't worry it's, it's just about you know interacting subatomic particles but anyway <laughs> he was also in the original battlestar galactica and something i've never heard of called raw force raw force raw force so uh this was his uh first acting credit isn't it oh was it i missed that early is what i got on my list here so well, this episode is actually a little more complicated than some other ones, so I guess we should probably get ourselves started. Yes, it begins with Scotty time. Yeah, Scotty's in command of the ship, but we it, that, this was weird, because 
Scotty is like giving some voiceover. Like they also have a video of him talking on the bridge, but he's not. It's it's voiceover, but he's also talking, but it doesn't match. It was freaked me. It was weird. It was like he's <laughs> yeah. not talking, but there's a video of him talking, but I can hear him talking, but the lip syncing isn't matching up. So this is like his log, but he's not actually recording the log. We're just seeing him talk to someone else while we're hearing the log, which they usually don't do, and I think for good reason. Yes, um, maybe our perception of time is a little wa- uh, wacky in this one here. It starts very beginning. <laughs> the Enterprise is responding to a distress call in an unexplored part of the galaxy. They send Ooh. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Compton, and another new dude down to explore what it turns out to be a very grand, empty city. Yeah, the uh, the bat painting in the background is actually uh, quite impressive, I have to say. Yeah, even the little, even their little foreground set with a little fancy fountain and stuff is pretty nice. So that seems like a nice planet. Maybe we can let you know, stay here. There doesn't seem to be anyone around. Now, on the ship, Uhura is watching the distress call that has five people standing in the same plaza that the crew is currently exploring, but she can't see the crew on the recording, and the crew can't see the five people who were there, so they conclude that it must have been a pre-recorded message that they just received sometime later. So these people could potentially have been uh, dead for thousands of years. Possible. That's inconvenient. McCoy has found very little plant life, basically no animal life, though Kirk appears to be hearing insects buzzing around him all the time, even though they shouldn't exist. Yeah, not just because Kirk is just Kirk is just that stinky this episode. Spock explored around and found many, many abandoned buildings, some that have obviously been abandoned for hundreds or even thousands of years, but others that seem to have been inhabited very, very recently. I'm getting a Robna vibe here, are you? Yeah, a little bit. Compton, who's been collecting water samples, suddenly disappears right in front of McCoy's eyes. As you do. Mm-hmm. They decide that that probably means it's a good idea to get out of here and go back to the ship. Yes, let's uh, go back to the ship. It's like, you know, take the materials we've collected and scan some stuff. And we got a science mission to uh, carry out, guys. So while McCoy examines the rest of the away team, Kirk rewatches the distress call again, where you see five people who are claiming to be the last of what used to be a race of millions in this city. Well, um, I guess everyone's just kind of vanishing then. Then the ship starts to break down with lots of little malfunctions happening all over the place. Nothing that seems to be life-threatening, and they often fix themselves immediately, but just all the systems are being wonky. Probably just another uh, alien entity taking over the system that's going to get us, uh, you know, to fight Cleons again or something. Yeah, probably. Kirk is called down to sickbay to be examined. Uh, Chapel tells him that the medical supply cabinet seems to have been rummaged through, but nothing's actually missing. McCoy, what did you do this time? You're not supposed to scare Nurse Chapel like that. Kirk is continuously hearing that same buzzing noise, and McCoy can't find any reason for it because he's not hallucinating and he's otherwise completely healthy. Well, he might still be hallucinating, McCoy. You can't. You, you don't. You don't have a direct connection to Kirk's brain. Come on. How do you know? They've got a little scanner, doodah. You don't know how it works. It does. It tells them whatever information they need for that particular plot. <laughs> Fair enough. Plot scanner. Kirk concludes that there may be some sort of intruder on board, and that's what he's hearing and what has been causing all these weird things. Also, suddenly something weird is happening in the life support section. Well, uh, we kind of need that life support section to, you know, live, so maybe let's go check this out. Yeah, life support's not a um, good thing to go on the fritz here. Yeah. Kirk, Spock, and two guards go to environmental controls. The two guards are hit with some sort of force field that isn't affecting Kirk and Spock, so they're allowed to go into the room. Oh, yeah, they're main characters, so 
Yeah, they, they could just walk through force fields whenever it's convenient. Here they find a something or other hooked up to the environmental controls. It's a big it's a doohickey. Yeah, big doohickey with tubes. What is this, some sort of tube? And they can't touch it because anytime they touch it, they experience pain. And when they try to shoot it, their phasers disappear. Well, obviously there's some strange force here. Um, Rod, ghosts! Spock thinks that this is a weird show of force, basically demonstrating that they are powerless to stop whoever or whatever is doing this. Whoever is doing this, maybe they should have, I don't know, been a little bit more stealthy and that they wouldn't have to show any force. No, they don't have to be stealthy. They're just going like, see, you can't do anything, stupid whoever you are. Oh, no, these these weird aliens might be jerk faces, but we'll have to find out in a moment. Back on the bridge, they enter all the available data they have into the computer. The computer thinks they're screwed. It's like, so what do we do about it? I don't know. Yeah, it's what do, what's going on? No idea. What do we do? Give up? <laughs> That's not a good answer. Um, anything else? Nope. <laughs> Kirk thinks they should just wait and see what the intruder's next move is. He grabs himself a cup of coffee that a passing ensign or yeoman or someone was just carrying around the bridge for some reason. Yeah, it's their, uh, uh, I don't know what time it is, uh, a clock uh, uh, coffee. Something appears to happen to the coffee just before Kirk drinks it. Then as soon as he does, everything around him begins to slow down. Oh no, Kirk, you've been drugged! Suddenly a woman appears, introducing herself as Della, the enemy that they beamed aboard with them. Hmm, well, um, um, hello, madam enemy person. Um, should I just get to the shooting now or what? She then suddenly grabs Kirk and kisses him. Well, this is not the, uh, the, the kind of invasion he was expecting, but okay. Kirk asks what she's done to the rest of the bridge crew, and she explains that she didn't do anything to them. She actually just sped up Kirk to match her and her companion's speed, because they live on a faster time scale than other people do. Well, I have thought about this a, bit, a fair bit uh, previously, uh, with different aliens that could potentially have very radically different uh, perceptions of reality in the world. But I don't know, this seems a little uh, absurd even by that sort of standard. Yeah. Oh, well, let's go with it. At least they don't spend any time trying to explain it. Yes, it's just, it's just a thing that happens. I mean, I appreciate that. You don't have to make up vaguely scientific-sounding things in order for it to work in science fiction. It's just like, here is the thing that's happening. Go with it. Yeah. She apparently is the queen of the sped-up people, and she wants to bring Kirk in to be the king. That's pretty good for you, Kirk. You get to rule an entire planet of people that are traveling a bazillion miles per hour. Kirk tries to shoot her with a phaser, but she's very unconcerned about this because the phaser actually just moves really, really slowly, and she steps to the side. <laughs> Nothing can stop the quad laser. And she claims that Kirk, like everyone else they speed up, will soon just accept the situation and be okay with absolutely everything that's happening, because that's how it always goes. Well, um, she seems pretty confident here, but she's not met James T. Kirk, the most uh, stubborn guy in the universe, I think. That is true. That seems to be his one and only defining superpower. He's the most stubborn person alive. Kirk runs off to check the environmental controls, where he meets Compton, who also got sped up. Oh, it's convenient you got beamed up to Compton. Uh, good to see you. Uh, we got some aliens on board. Maybe we should, like, I don't know, try to undo whatever they're doing to our ship and figure out how to solve our situation. Yeah, Compton's apparently on the aliens' side now, and Uh-oh. Kirk's not allowed inside. So he beats up Compton and runs inside to find Rial, who stuns him immediately. He then smacks Compton for failing to keep out Kirk. This cuts him, and apparently this causes him to age rapidly because when 
accelerated, normal people are incredibly sensitive to cell damage. Yeah, well, um, that kind of sucks. I guess means um, Kirk's like the, 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 the guy from the previous episode. If he just gets cut slightly, he's going to die instantly. Oh, God. Basically, we raised the stakes. Yes. <laughs> I need to add something to the award section now. <laughs> Back on the bridge, they noticed that Kirk disappeared. About time, guys. What has it been, like a half a second for you guys? Spock goes to examine Kirk's coffee. Because it's the only thing they've got around. And everyone else gets a little little concerned that they might have been drugged too, but, you know. Kirk wakes up, finds Rial, who's a big jerk to him, basically. Tells him that he can't touch their device. So Kirk touches their device, and it freezes his hands a bit. Because it's very cold. I wonder if I do that again, I'll get the same effect. <laughs> he runs off to find Spock, because, you know, he's on the ship. He's basically trapped there. They don't care where he goes. Indeed. Rail gets upset at Della, apparently because he's in love with her, but they can't be together for some reason, and he's jealous of Kirk now. Well, I guess, you know, if she's in love with Kirk and he's in love with her, we got a, a love triangle of some sort. But, but maybe... Maybe, maybe there's a good reason for this. Yeah, maybe it's the driving force in the plot we'll figure out later, but still doesn't make this make a huge amount of sense. Yes, I, I just figured that he was jealous at the time, so. <laughs> Kirk finds Spock in the lab where he's examining the coffee, but he can't communicate with him because of the timescale thing, so he tries to record a message to him on the computer. Della enters and doesn't object because, you know, it's pointless for him to try to communicate because by the time Spock or anyone hears this, they'll be done with the thing they're doing. Also, it's going to just sound like weird buzzing anyway. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, we have to sort of figure out some other means in order to communicate what you have to say to everybody. Yep. Here we get our big info dump because it's framed as Kirk just intuiting a bunch of stuff because he's smarty pants, I guess. Yeah, it's like, well, here's my evidence, and this might be a bit of a stretch, but I'm going to say some other things that kind of make sense, and then they just happen to happen to be actually true. Yeah, okay. Della just stands there and confirms everything, because she doesn't care. He's not getting out of the situation. It's like, yeah, I, I don't mind if you give it all away. <laughs> no one's going to hear my villain monologue here. <laughs> so the aliens all got accelerated by some sort of volcano radiation. It killed most of them. And the ones that it didn't kill, it sterilized. Oh, that's inconvenient. Um, so I guess your species is at an end then. There's a few like women who can still have children, apparently. So every time a ship comes by, they put out a distress call, lure the ship in, take some of the crew, mate with them, and then freeze the ship so that they can use the rest of them later as needed. Well, that's kind of weird. Um, how about you just like ask people instead? I mean, the, according to them, they can't actually, like, speed up people and then slow them back down. The speed up thing is permanent, so I guess they think they can't communicate. Well, I guess that is a little bit of an issue, but, you know, there are, there's probably some folks out there in the universe that would, you know, be okay with being sped up forever, uh, if that means they get, you know, get to have a little fun like that. Kirk really doesn't like this very much, but it's too late because they've already set up the thingy and Della orders them to start the freeze effect and they can beam down and then they'll turn the machine on. And the you know, ship will be frozen in stasis. Well, that's going to be a little awkward for the crew then. Hmm. You can be woken up one by one and carried down to the planet and, uh, and then have a, a life with some random lady they've just met. <laughs> 
Except for the woman, of course. I guess they're kind of SOL. Yeah, they don't really yeah. say anything about that. I guess because it's way too creepy that direction. So it's like a reverse, like, monsters from Mars stealing all the women sort of thing, isn't it? Kirk puts the tape he was working on in the computer, hoping Spock will find it later, and runs away. He gets to the transporter before Della and removes something. Oh, the doohickey. Della finds him and accepts his weirdly flimsy explanation. I guess because she likes him. Oh, yes. Yeah, of, of course there's power issues because you guys have been messing with the ship, so that totally makes sense that we're not beaming down to the planet right now. So, um, what you doing? She orders Rail to not freeze the ship yet because they need to delay until they can repair the transporter and leave. Fine, I guess she just wants sense. to spend more time with Kirk or something. Kirk's doing everything he can to sort of delay until, you know, someone finds the message and all that. Back in the lab, Spock and McCoy hear this weird buzzing noise, but now Spock suddenly has an idea. He runs to the bridge, pulls up the distress call recording, and begins speeding up the recording until the talking becomes just sort of a buzzy whine, and then suddenly he can see the crew in the plaza where the distress call was recorded. That's so weird! Dun dun dun! Spock has cracked the case, he didn't even need to look at the recording. <laughs> Kirk and Della decide to kill time in Kirk's quarters, where she brushes her hair slightly and goes, there, I have freshened up, and then they just start kissing. Yep, so um, yeah, cue the, uh, the 80s saxophone music here. McCoy finds Kirk's tape, and Spock, now knowing the speed thingy, gets it to work immediately to see Kirk's message and warning about what's going on. So now everyone's up to speed, as it were. Everyone's on the same page plot-wise. Okay, good. Back in Kirk's quarters, uh, he's on the bed putting his boots on, and she's brushing her hair again. Well, I, I guess she needs to freshen up again. No, for some reason. Who knows? Who could say what happened in this intervening scene? <laughs> it's a mystery, everyone. Rail runs in while the two of them are kissing again. This sends him into a jealous rage, and he attacks Kirk, who fends him off with some various chairs and tables and other objects until Della is able to stun him. Because yeah, remember, once again, if Kirk is injured in slightly in the least, uh, he'll die instantly, so, you know. She tells Rail to leave and finish fixing the transporter. Kirk gets all docile now. He's like, now accepted things, and goes, oh, did I do the wrong thing? I'm so sorry, let's leave. Well, um, I guess he has delayed for as long as possible, and, you know, uh, he's, he's sort of gotten to the point where I got nothing else, so I guess we get to go down and do the thing, and I uh, get to live out the rest of my life with yeah, you. Now Della's all upset, because she doesn't like him as well, Docile, even though she kept saying that he would become that anyway. Yeah, well... I guess she likes bad boys. Kirk is the baddest boy of them all. Back in the lab, McCoy has now come up with a method to counteract the effects of the speed water. That's convenient. McCoy just has a thing that can slow people down. Yeah, so they haven't tested it yet. And they go, how will we test it? And Spock goes, I'm going to drink some of the speed up water. And he does. I guess that uh, means uh, Spock's going to be drinking it right away, right? Yeah, he just speeds up now. Like, that's it. Yeah, Spock... <laughs> Come back, Spock. We, we, we need to know if the test worked. <laughs> now the transporter's fixed. Della takes Kirk to beam down while Rael prepares to start the device. Then suddenly Kirk grabs her weapon because he wasn't docile after all. He was just pretending to get close to her. Ha ha. Yeah, luring in with his, you know, uh, uh, masculine wiles or something. 
He runs to the environmental controls, meets Spock on the way. They have a very brief fight with Real, who's stunned. Uh, Kirk doesn't bother to tell Spock that he has a weapon that's not going to work here. Sorry, Spock, but, you know, we don't have any time. We're sped up like crazy. But Kirk uses their own weapons to destroy the freezer device, so now they don't have their doohickey anymore. Oh, I guess uh, we want in the day. Um, hopefully they're not going to be sticking around here and uh, repairing it. That'd be inconvenient. They send the captured Della and Rail back to the planet. Kirk seems to regret to see her go. It's all sad now. Wasn't there, like, another random lady? Yeah, there was, but she's they beamed her down earlier. Okay, okay. She was going to marry uh, Conway or whatever his name was. Colson Compton. Compton. One of those C words, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, there was a random lady and another random guy, but they each had like one line and then they beamed down before all this started. <laughs> they put themselves on a bus. Kirk drinks the cure and returns to normal time. Suddenly, everyone's like, where did you come from? It's like, well, I've been here. I've been everywhere. Back on the bridge, the ship suddenly starts getting repaired really fast, and Kirk informs the crew that Spock is effecting repairs to the ship that should be done right now. Oh, well, that's useful. Spock reappears, because he also drank the thing, so it's good it worked. You know, with this sort of stuff, we could potentially, like, insta-repair our ship whenever we needed to. Yeah, know? they haven't demonstrated that this is dangerous at all, so... Yeah, hmm. Uh, her uh, apparently accidentally, maybe on purpose. No one. It's I don't know why they include this line about her accidentally turning on the distress call. But anyway, Della winds up on the view screen somehow. Yes, and Kirk kind of like, like looks at her longingly. It's like, oh. Yeah, Kirk says goodbye as the ship leaves. The end. The end. So they left them there to die on the planet. And we didn't even get so much as just a hand-wavy line about how the cure they developed would only work for them because they just got recently sped up or something. It's like, we developed a cure, but we're not going to give it to you. Also, we're going to warn everyone away, so you're going to live out the rest of your lives alone on this planet sped up with no hopes of ever propagating your species. Bye. They might be doing one of those things where it's like, Prime Directive says we can't give you the cure, but also because you're hurting people, we have to warn everyone away. Well, they didn't even say that. They just leave them there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the best post-episode uh, thing I could sure to figure out as far as what they're doing there at the end. So this episode wound up with some slightly interesting dynamics because this is one mm-hmm. of the first times that we get Kirk being predated on by a woman. Usually he's the one doing creepy shit. Now he's like, well, uh, this is this is actually uncomfortable. Oh. Well, what's interesting is at the beginning, he's like not exactly uncomfortable so much as annoyed that his irresistible charms or whatever are getting in the way of him getting explanations. He never seems to consider the situation threatening to himself in any way. Mm-hmm. And then later, because it would be horrible if, you know, this became awkward for Kirk, he likes it. It's basically saying that if you are a man being predated on by a woman, the way for you to gain your power again in the situation is to just go, well, I like it anyway. Yeah, that's not how things actually work, though. Because you're basically just lying to yourself. I mean, it is a thing that we say all the time, which is pretty bad. Like, every time they talk about this in... Even in news sources, whenever they talk about about a sexual assault 
or abusive relationship that goes this direction, they always say something like that. Like the guy was fine or they actually liked it. Or the worst one is when you have like a teacher who is uh, sexually assaulting their, their younger students you always get the one mm-hmm. conservative news host going like, oh, where were these teachers when I was in school? A yuck. Yeah. But, you know, they're still taking advantage of their power. Uh, they are manipulating the situation in order to get something that they uh, d- uh, desire out of someone who doesn't want to give it. And thus, this is, you know, universally uncool. Uh, and to try to play it off as, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, the band is always eager for sex is a little ridiculous and no guys are not always eager for sex yeah this situation um like not to to compare various assaults but as far as things go this one is like a kidnapping with some pretty life-threatening consequences for kirk she speeds him up to something that as far as they know is permanent he can never interact with his normal world again yeah, he's basically taken, you know, been taken completely out of his uh, normal life and been forced into the situation. This is something that's incredibly dangerous for him because they talk about how mm-hmm. he could get this cell damage thing and die immediately. And also, they just don't normally live as long as they do once they've been sped up. So this is kind of a, you know, <laughs> your life's going to be a lot shorter no matter what way this goes. And the reason that they're doing it is exclusively because she finds him attractive and wants sex. Yes. But the solution to this, in, in which is an interesting role reversal, I'll give them that, that he seduces her into having sex in order to, like, trick her with his manly wiles. But it's framed as good because it's like, well, he got sex in addition to getting himself out of this situation. Isn't that great? Instead of, like, when a woman seduces the guy, it's, like, horrible how she basically tricked him into having sex in order to get something out of him. Yeah, in this, this case, it's framed in, yeah you know, the other way. And, yeah, it's like, no, this is... This, it's terrible to be forced in a situation where this is your only option in order to get things, uh, you know, that may, you know, remedy the situation. And no one should be, you know, forced into that sort of position. Well, it's particularly interesting, having seen this framed both directions from the same character, the main difference between the two is we are always, we're always viewing it from the perspective of Kirk, and we're always supposed to be empathizing with Kirk, but Kirk is always supposed to be in the power position. So in Mm -hmm. the situation where Kirk is predating on someone else we're supposed to empathize with him and go oh yeah he gets the pretty girl no matter what because he's the only one we are supposed to care about in the situation if someone seduced him which hasn't actually really happened but if someone seduced him to trick him that would be terrible because he's supposed to be in the power position and now he's not in this one they almost had that happen but then he becomes the seducer again in order to put him back into the power position so that we don't have to feel uncomfortable with our point of view character being not in a power position over the women around him and so yeah that's that's kind of cheap honestly and in fact like at the end he got hurt by falling for this woman who like now he has to leave to die and isn't it so bad for him yeah but not because he's been through like 
what would be kind of a traumatic kidnapping scenario because now he has to leave this hot woman that he slept with on this planet to die and he's probably not going to get to sleep with her again well there might be like a stockholm situation uh syndrome situation here potentially but i'm not saying it myself well they don't present it that way he is always in the power position even when kidnapped because kirk is just that powerful and things like that because they don't want to this era of television doesn't want to explore gender dynamics and power positions and things it wants to say here is your powerful hero here is how he is still powerful and in control in any given situation yeah there is nothing that's going to change this dynamic ever and so don't expect it to even when things are kind of trying to be you know you know flipping the things on on their head you know, he's going to have some means in order to regain that upper hand sort of automagically. Now, the the central sci-fi element of this episode is the time manipulation aspect, which we can get into a bit. Mm-hmm. But I think the really interesting philosophical question that this episode actually poses, and it's one that has been posed multiple times in science fiction, and I don't know if it's ever been dealt with that directly, is one... Does a society inherently have the right to continue as a society apart from its individuals, members? And where does one's right to procreate oneself fall within that? That's a very good question. The central conceit that we are given is that this species can no longer continue themselves without external help because they don't have enough fertile members of their own species to be able to procreate themselves and the thing that they say is the issue with that is that their civilization will not continue and we see the fall of a civilization as this horrible thing as if a civilization itself has some sort of right or privilege to exist even though most of the time when a civilization falls they're not saying it in this instance because of the fertility problem but most of the time in real world examples if a civilization falls that doesn't mean every single member of that civilization is dead the civilization doesn't continue in some sort of abstract way that we can only really point to later on in history like the fall of rome was fairly slow the roman civilization fell apart and fragmented over a period of like a thousand years we can look back Indeed. and say the Roman civilization was gone, but I don't think there was ever there was probably ever a point in history where they went, well, we're, Roman civilization is dead now. Goodbye. Yeah, Rome is over. No more Rome. In fact, uh, there's been uh, plenty of uh, you know leaders, nations, people that are basically like we're going to be, we are taking up the mantle of Rome. So Rome still lives. It is living through us, and that's why we're awesome and things. Yeah. Like that. So you have the idea that the civilization has a right to continue. And we've kind of conflated in modern times uh, civilization with nation state. Mm -hmm. So it's basically the idea that your sovereignty has its own independent right of existence. To call that into question is not only uh, forbidden, but something you need to uh, automatically uh, automatically, uh, be able to apply force uh, in order to preserve. Yeah, which they're doing here because they've decided that People who are not members of their nation do not have the same rights that they, as members of the nation, do, which is something we do a lot. This is the kind of gatekeeping of citizenship. If you are a citizen Mm -hmm. of 
the United States, you have certain rights and privileges that a non-citizen of the United States does not have. We say that like our government killing a member killing a citizen of the country is inherently wrong and we've tried to put safeguards and protections into that but if you go to war with another nation you're allowed to kill as many members of that other nation as you like because they are not your citizens well try, try to cut down civilian uh, casualties but if 30 random people at a party happen to get blown up too then no one's gonna bat an eye because that's just how we sort of come to accept these things so what they're doing in this episode is saying that the members of the Enterprise crew, not being members of their civilization, mm -hmm. are just people that they get to do whatever to in order to propagate their own civilization. They have become a resource to be harvested. Quite literally, really. And the particular only thing they really say is it's because they, are, they need to propagate themselves and they should have the right to propagate themselves. They even bring up at one point that the reason that they can't is because of an environmental disaster and they didn't do anything wrong to deserve this. So I guess the question is, you know, are they at all in the right in doing this? And in this sort of, you know, very modernist uh, sort of, uh, a modernistic sort of a view of things, they would have the right to apply the force, but potentially the, those that they're, they're applying the force to their sovereignty is also being sort of you know, violated by this, and so they can apply force back. And so then you have conflict. Yeah, they seem to be getting into, they get into the whoever can win is right scenario again. We are yeah, just supposed to be, we're supposed to be siding with the crew because they're a point of view characters. Mm -hmm. But they don't really get into the discussion that's one of the criticisms I always have when they form it, have an interesting dilemma on this show is they don't really discuss it. They always solve it with some sort of force. Yeah, it's like, oh, this is a problem to be solved, and that that problem to be solved is to drink McCoy's syrup or something like that here, and then everything's fine. <laughs> but when you get right down to it, like the the forces that they're applying are political because it's like citizens versus non-citizens with who we're allowed to do these things to. Indeed. But the general question that you get down to is how much right does indiv any individual have to procreate? We do recognize the right to defend one own, one's own existence. We, most countries and legal systems recognize self-defense as a justified reason to harm or kill another person. If, if that person was threatening your existence, then potentially ending theirs is justified. Then you know if you know, if this is a continuation of you know you know your 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 the the self as in you know, having children is your legacy and that is a continuation of you then to be able to to be prevented from uh, having that uh, ability to procreate would then by a certain interpretation be that by preventing us from doing such you are enacting harm on us. Yeah, see, it's an interesting argument to get into because you would also, you could also argue, I think the right to self-defense extends here. If you, if your child is threatened, the same rules apply. We've actually, we've seen this. There have been uh, court precedents of someone uh, being killed when they are attacking someone's child and it has been ruled self-defense. So this is just a, a really early child. So we consider the... We consider defending your child to be an extension of self-defense laws. So how far can you extend that to if you are 
prevented from having a child, does that also count? Now, this gets into a bodily autonomy argument because, of course, something like forced sterilization, which we did practice in the U.S. and other Western countries uh, until way too recently, and in some cases it's still being applied in certain uh, prison systems in the U.S., Mm -hmm. that is a violation of the individual's bodily autonomy because you are doing something to that individual's body that they did not consent to. Yes. When you are dealing with something like procreation, however, you need two individuals in order to take part. So you can say that it's wrong to prevent two people who want to procreate. If you say that they can't, you could agree that that is wrong. But if one mem- if one person alone wants to procreate and they can't get anyone else to agree to partner with them in that you can't exactly like you can't exactly consider that to be wrong because it would be equally wrong to force someone to procreate when they didn't want to as it would be to prevent this person from procreating you need both parties to be consenting here in order for this to be okay that does get to some interesting ground though because i was having this discussion with someone else the other day to kind of work my thoughts out And they brought up the example of sperm banking, where there have been several interesting little kind of borderline rights cases where basically someone banked sperm and then died. And then someone else, often their like their you know, wife or or partner wanted to use it to have a child. And Mm -hmm. the way the legal rights were going, the original sperm donor's parents were the people who got to decide this. And that's where some of the course cases were coming from. But it's a weird one because, like, the person who whose, you know, DNA that is, the person who would be having the child is now dead. Yes. So it's where do the rights fall when the person who would be having the child is no longer able to consent? Well, I guess this particular situation, you know, the, the the person is unable to consent one way or the other. So the there is the, the, the interpretation that you know in order to then you know have this happen would be then to violate their, their consent because they are unable to say no. But then there's also things where you know sort of the medical ethics uh, angle where you know next of kin uh, are now now responsible for this sort of question, which I guess is how they get to the uh, the you know the the person's parents being responsible. And I guess it kind of comes down to is it something that can be transferred as far as consent goes, or is it something that is going to be uh, permanently married to the person who has now died? Yeah, and it's an odd one when you get to consent of someone who has died, because one of the major purposes of consent is to avoid harm. But when you're dead, you cannot be harmed in that way. Mm -hmm. So why should or why should consent continue after you have died? That's a good question. (laughs) Uh, In some ways, you you could potentially uh, toss the entire thing out. But then uh, if you start doing that, I have to... Big question is okay. Uh, after you die, uh, what happens to your body? Uh, there are some folks that, for various reasons, uh, want their bodies to be, say, donated to science, and other people that really don't want that, and so they uh, have, uh, you know, stipulations that this is what happens to them after they die. They get buried, cremated, whatever. And to 
suddenly just sort of blow in, uh, you know, this notion out of, you know, post-mortem consent issues, you know, that, oh, you just don't have any consent anymore, uh, you know, would kind of, I guess, undo a lot of the, uh, you know, current thinking about how all that sort of stuff works. Yeah, it would. And a lot of something that um, I think does get a little bit ignored in some of these cases is the, the post-mortem consent idea is usually there to protect the family and other loved ones. Mm-hmm. Because what you wanted done with your body actually can often be overruled by your family. Now, it can't be overruled by the medical establishment or uh, other things. There was like a there was like some court cases and scandal problems a while back with that um, bodies exhibit. The mm-hmm. artist who was making sort of resin infused uh, body sculptures. Oh, yeah, I remember those. There was some question as to whether the people whose bodies were being used had consented to that or if they had just sort of donated their bodies for medical science, which this wasn't exactly that. Yeah, it's like maybe example modeling, but not really. There's more art here. So, you know, in that case, it's kind of, the family knowing that the person's wishes were violated hurts the family, which means you're still hurting living people. Indeed. But the, the two um, kind of opposite examples that I remember from the sperm banking example were uh, one where a person died without having children and his parents really, really wanted grandchildren. Yeah. And they were claiming that they should be able to extract sperm from the recently deceased child and be able to use that with a surrogate to create a grandchild. That's a little uncomfortable to think about. Yeah, that one's a little uncomfortable. I I am forgetting the exact details. I believe that there was a wife involved who said that they the man had not wanted children like at all Mm -hmm. which was one of the reasons that this was becoming an issue it's like yeah he has stated to you know before he died that this is what he wanted to have happen and you are explicitly going against those wishes this one's also a little complicated because it gets into issues of uh of surrogacy which is its own entire moral conundrum So then yeah, there's a, a whole, whole rabbit. Then hole there. the other side of that was um, a man died and his wife wanted to use their banked sperm in order to have a child. And the parents said that he had not wanted children and she should not be allowed to do that. Sort of a, I guess, the inverse of the previous situation directly. And what's interesting, like on, on my, for my side, I was thinking about it and I would kind of come down on opposite sides on each of these cases, which I thought was kind of interesting because I don't know if I can fully explain it beyond maybe some personal biases. I'd say that for me on these two cases, it would, a lot of it would kind of come down to the nitty gritty and the details uh, and only basically getting the uh, overview of what you've given me so far, I wouldn't be able to make a solid decision myself at this point. Um, but I guess the, you know, I would, would, if I was judging this, be putting a lot of, uh, I guess, interest in, you know, the known statements by the deceased 
in order to come to a, a, a solid conclusion of what they would most likely have wanted out of the situation. Um, and then I ruled, ruled accordingly if that seemed reasonable. If not, then if or I couldn't get that, then, well, I guess I have to go back to, on precedent there. I think for me, it kind of came down to in the one case, it's basically the parents deciding that they should get to control what their child would have wanted, which is something that happens mm-hmm. a lot. But like if the if the guy had stayed alive, he would have been able to continue denying whether or not he wanted a child. And the wife Indeed. didn't want this to happen. And in the other case, I would yeah. say that the wife wanting the child like that is the person who gets more say in the decision, because originally, if the man had stayed alive, that like the two of them would have had to decide between themselves whether they wanted to conceive a child. So she should take more precedence in the decision making than the parents should. I think in the, the first case, it could also be very easily pointed out that if they've been married, you know, for any, you know, you know, uh, you know, you know more like a few weeks sort of situation. And uh, that's like that. Since we've not already gotten pregnant here, we, we this is maybe a very good piece of evidence that this is actually indeed what his wish, wish was. Sorry, parents, but no. Yeah, the argument there, and I forget how that case worked out, but the argument was that she would not be involved. So since the man died, she's no longer married to him because he's dead. Now the parents should get to decide whether or not they wanted to basically order up a grandchild. And she would yeah. not be involved at all because it wouldn't be her kid. Yeah, but and then yeah, that's just kind of not cool because now you're pulling in somebody who obviously was not married to the deceased and was not their you know their partner and the person that they, if they're going to have a kid would had a kid with uh, under uh, you know general circumstances. And so yeah, that, that's kind of BS there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, I guess there's also. Uh, uh, now, now you have also me uh, thinking about another uh, possible situation. Um, I don't have any court cases to assign this to, but what if someone banked their sperm and maybe you know, both people in the relationship uh, uh, died or something like that, and the and they had made known that they wanted to have kids, would the parents be then allowed to uh, basically have as many grandkids via this method as they like now? That's an interesting idea. I suppose it's that um, if you wanted to have that scenario, you would have to have had them kind of bank both sperms and eggs, mm-hmm. which would be a fairly unusual situation. Indeed. I think in that case, you do get into more of the surrogacy argument. Yeah, which yeah, maybe is a little bit, you know, not where we need to go today. But but yeah, it's, it's, I'm thinking about this stuff more. Hmm. But then you also get, like, let's take the situation presented by the episode. We would also consider it wrong. And this was in, so I was thinking about this when I was watching this. In vitro fertilization was not something that was really known about or used until the 70s. So having other methods of conception was not something they would have really been thinking about for this particular scenario. Yeah, far future technology, unconceived of by the creators of Star Trek. But the thing that they could still have done would have just been artificial insemination without in vitro. Mm -hmm. So we would also consider it wrong for them to basically come on board with their super speed, use that to 
extract an appropriate amount of DNA from any particular crew member they wanted, then use that to procreate back on their planet. It just, uh, you know, it's a little bit, I guess, more direct in some ways, but less in others. Yeah, it's a very interesting one because you have a very visceral reaction to it, which is something that I'm not trying to ignore because I think we too often ignore like having a visceral reaction that something is wrong is usually a pretty good clue that it's wrong. Like you might have to think about it later to figure out exactly how or to explain it. But too often we go like, well, I like can viscerally feel this. This is wrong, but you can't explain why it's wrong with logic. Therefore, it's not wrong. And that's kind of odd. Yeah, this is a. It, 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 there are moments where you know, your part of you has figured out what's with what's amiss, but you haven't been able to put the pieces together. But it's yeah. an interesting one to look at, and I think I haven't seen a lot of examination on this of why we put such an emphasis on sort of control over your own procreation and DNA, because in that instance, if they came on board basically took unwilling sperm donations and then used them, the crew would basically never have to know, but it would still be considered wrong, even though arguably it didn't really hurt the crew in any appreciable way. It's a a, a quiet theft where they don't know that something's been taken. Now, we might consider it more wrong because then, you know, the children wouldn't get to know their parents, but that is somewhat cultural, how important that is to someone's being raised if this was a very common means of procreation you wouldn't think it was weird to not know like one half of your parents yeah you know, it's like oh yeah you, you know your mom and then there's a random guys that we kind of call your dad but he's not really your dad and i don't have a good explanation for this one i think it kind of comes down to once you start saying that you shouldn't be in control of different things about yourself it breaks down very quickly Like the bodily autonomy Mm -hmm. argument has to be very global. Otherwise it starts to break down. Yeah. It's like if you're not uh, able to control your DNA, then, well, I guess we're going to be just sort of extracting that uh, whenever we feel like. And now we're going to, uh, you know, you know, put in a crime database for, you know, in one case, we're going to be using it to create a, you know, a a new, uh, you know, you know, miracle cure and you're not going to get any credit for it another and all sorts of other, you know, fun jazz like that. And then you're like, wait, I didn't consent to any of this. And like, well, sorry, your DNA is just a just a series of numbers. So we're going to just do whatever we like with it. So, huh? Yeah, because you get you get into some really weird edge case consent issues when you start dealing with stuff like this. And they're interesting to examine. And you kind of almost have to go with your visceral feeling on why things were wrong. Like, they didn't even, they didn't get into, like, you know, sperm donation or anything with this episode, I guess, because they didn't want to get all weird and you weren't allowed to talk about that sort of thing in the 60s, possibly. Yeah. (laughs) But you have all kinds of things. Taboo. Like, you have to get into very, very, like, definite and well-informed consent things with this. There were a couple of cases not very long ago where um, sperm banks, it was kind of discovered that the sperm bank was not giving people the sperm from the donors they said it was it was uh dr so-and-so and uh and now he has like 200 kids it's like i mean i yep. guess evolutionarily <laughs> that makes him incredibly successful yes um you know maybe not up to genghis khan levels here but you know still still up there but that's like basically a violation of the other person because you told them that the, that you told them that they were putting something else in their body you're basically saying that 
you they the, here's the information and they've consented to this information but that's not what you you're actually doing to them lying sucks points in time uh, throughout star trek and uh, other series that we'll be able to uh, touch on some of the uh, other aspects of that as we uh, move forward like you know like you know, julian bashir is maybe a good example of that uh, you know did you know were his parents you know in the you know right independent federation law to uh, basically get him re-engineered i think in this in this particular example you kind of get into it's not wrong to say that you're not allowed to have a child by yourself if that means like violating someone else's bodily autonomy if you're violating two people's bodily autonomy by saying that they together can't choose to have a child that's also wrong yeah you got you know you're both your folks here you need to be having everyone on board otherwise no if they are on board cool well, that's the thing. Saying you individually can't use whatever means to have a child is not violating your autonomy. It's violating your like procreation, but it's not violating mm-hmm. your bodily autonomy. You still have control over your body. Yes. You're just not allowed to take something from someone else's. Yeah, and violate their bodily autonomy. Now that was a slightly longer discussion. Do we need to talk about timescales? Uh, I was actually uh, doing a little bit of math for the episode in order to uh, get that sorted out. I actually did some uh, some, some, some number oh, crunching here. Fun, fun math. Yeah, so, so assuming that given that everyone in this episode who is traveling really fast is not seen at all by anyone else, that means that for, you know, the... the that they are moving at such velocities and speeds that if they even stand there for a certain amount of time, that they will be gone before the human brain is able to perceive the, the them standing there. And so I made an estimate. It's like, okay, in most of these scenes, they get to move, you know, talking and standing there for about five minutes each, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of at the longer end of things. And so that amount of time in their time frame needs to ha- be smaller than the time frame needed for perception to pick them up, right? Yes. So that means, uh, you know, after I do, do a little math, is that that one normal second, uh, uh, you know, to, you know, the, the ratio of one normal second to crazy sped up si- uh, second is 0.000015 plus a little bit extra on top of that. Uh, so that in, in that much uh, amount of seconds is what, you know, that ridiculously small amount of real world seconds is one second in the accelerated time frame, right? Mm-hmm. So here, here's where things get a little crazy. <laughs> so you get, uh, say, normal walking speed. You're, you're going to be walking about, say, one and a half-ish meters per second. So 1.4 meters per second is what the, one of the things I, I looked up. Uh, so it's just numbers. Using that ratio of time, that means in the normal uh, yeah, frame uh, perception there, that Kirk, when he's walking down the hall, he's traveling at 92,400 meters per second. It's a little fast. Yeah. Since... Terminal velocity should be around fifty meters per second. Uh, you know, if this, if the atmosphere on the uh, Enterprise is similar to, you know, you know, Earth normal, which means he's going a little bit faster than that. So that means that he's going to be feeling a certain amount of force as he tries to move around. Um, do, do you have a guess about how much force he's going to run into, Gepwin? That's more than the speed of sound, right? So yes. <laughs> 
I mean, he should be creating sonic booms basically with every step. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> more than just a little buzzing here. But uh, the, the amount of force that he that he'll be needing to apply constantly to walk at a normal velocity through a standard atmosphere is about 6.8 billion newtons of force. Which, to put that in comparison, that's about 10 times the total force of all the light from the sun hitting the Earth, or about 200 times the thrust of a Saturn V rocket at liftoff. So Kirk is very beefy, apparently. Oh, I mean, we already yeah. knew that. He's like, the, he's the most best man. Uh, and, uh, you know, Spock and Compton are also of comparable strength, apparently. Yeah, the only thing that you could figure out with this is that they're trying to go for one of those vibrational frequency things. Mm -hmm. You're just sort of like moving in between the atoms or something like that. Yeah, well, they're not actually moving that fast. They're just like, since they're at a different time scale, you can't see them regardless. Like, they don't have mm -hmm. to have gotten out of the room before you realized they were there. They could hang out there for an hour. It's perfectly still and you'd never see them. Yeah, but uh, I, I'm going with my... But what I know about actual science yeah, opposed to Star Trek science. How it works. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes it's fun to sort of speculate about this. I'm not trying to uh, slam the episode mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, this sort of stuff, but it's fun to think about. So, so I've got a couple more numbers for you if you're interested. All right. All right so, so Kirk traveling at that velocity would have uh, a, a, if his, if his body mass is about 80 kilograms, he would have about 341 billion joules of energy to him as he's walking around, uh, of kinetic energy, which is about 10 to the 24th mega electron volts. So, if Kirk is made out of, say, 7 times 10 to the 27th atoms, that means for each of his atoms, he has on average been imbuing about 300 electron volts of energy into each atom. And so, when he's running into the oxygen, he is able to ionize the air as he passes through it because the first ionization energy of oxygen is 13.62, which is, of course, less than 300. So just by walking around, he's able to ionize things. That's pretty cool. So it keeps his hair from being frizzy. Yes. <laughs> now, there is some good news. He might be leaving a plaza trail everywhere he's walking around here. But at least he's not at such relativistic velocities that he's going to expire fusion or something like that. Um, he's only at 0.03% uh, of the speed of light, so we're probably going to be okay there. Well, that's good, at least. <laughs> uh, I have one final number. Hmm. So, so let's say that about 20 minutes transpire on the Enterprise from the moment Kirk gets sped up to when uh, you know, uh, Kirk uh, comes back to, to normal time, right? Hmm. Uh, guess how many years he has been sped up? Hmm. Like Two and a half. For him? Yes. <laughs> Kirk has been uh, uh, hanging out with uh, uh, Della and the rest there for about two and a half years, which means that uh, Rail there is very, very bad at fixing transporters because he has plenty of time to uh, get that all back to working. And I, I guess, yeah. That explains why he's so sad at the end. Oh, my wife of two years, I will never see you again. <laughs> So you know, Kirk has had plenty of time to to potentially fall totally in love and and have maybe several kids with her and maybe they're now hanging out at Enterprise really sped up somehow and no one's ever going to know, know them. <laughs> so that's uh, our depressing math uh, of the day. <laughs> well, I thought the time scale thing was kind of interesting because 
I've, yeah. I've seen a few things about various time scales because obviously whenever we look at stuff, we're looking at it from a human time scale. Mm -hmm. But as far as we can tell, there are lots of things that kind of operate on different time scales to us. That doesn't mean that we can't see them because something has to be moving pretty fast for us not to see it. There are yes. some things that do that, but only in bursts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it a little bit of blurriness and you, you can say, oh, yeah, there's something happening. I don't know what's going on. And then we can get scientific you know, instruments that can pick up even faster stuff. But you get to things like certain like smaller birds and things as far as we can tell they're processing information at such a greater speed to us that to them time probably does seem to move more slowly yeah and then you hit something like people have pointed out things like trees and plants if you look at a time lapse of a plant it looks like it's moving around like an animal yeah just sort of swaying back and forth here and you know leaning a little more to the light perhaps and it's like yeah that's the good stuff it just takes a few hours to get there. Well, there are trees that, you know, walking trees that grow roots in a particular pattern that lets them kind of migrate their position over time. It takes years and years and years, but they do move across the ground. Nice. I was I heard this thing recently. There's this kind of uh, like ground dwelling bacteria that they found that they said spends basically as far as they can tell all of its time in a dormant state. And they were just like, this, this probably is something that operates on such a time scale, such a like vastly different time scale to us, that we just aren't really going to be understanding it. Yes. And the, so the, the very interesting thing they gave, the interesting example was basically, if trees basically operate the way trees do, but humans only lived for 24 hours, then... If you lived in winter, generations and generations of people would see trees with no leaves on them. Be like, well, yes. trees <laughs> are this weird dead stick with no leaves. Yeah, they're just kind of there. And it doesn't, you know, sure there's this weird stuff on the ground, uh, sometimes covered in snow, but, you know, we'd, I have no idea if it's connected at all. It's uh, just sort of, you know, these you know, stuff down here. And then, you know, generations later, you'd hit, well, trees are these things with buds all over them and generations after that you might hit trees have leaves and then generations after that it's like well trees are these things with really brightly colored leaves they've been like that for generations mm -hmm. well the time scale thing like you don't not see something with a different time scale you see it you just see it as way more static or way more fleeting mm -hmm. which um actually voyager like it said several times don't don't confuse this episode with blink of an eye Yes, yes. <laughs> Where there's the that's the planet that's uh, going really fast, right? Yeah, Voyager did basically this concept, but like they got to see this planet and these people who aged incredibly fast in comparison to them, but they were still aware of them and they saw them and they watched the development of their civilization and the people on the planet were aware of Voyager as a ship. They just like couldn't interact with it. It was just a thing that was there. Yeah, it's this ever-present star in the sky. Yeah, had been there for as long as anyone could possibly remember. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you, you, the episode starts with the uh, the locals being like sort of like caveman times, and you know, it's like early civilization, and then we're you know later in the Renaissance, and it's like, yeah, we're going to try to communicate it with balloons and see what happens. And then Lane's like, well, we're sending a rocket up there, and uh, that's pretty cool. And then later it's like, well. We're going to get those guys up there. We're going to build some sort of antimatter bomb now. It's been there for too long and it's causing problems. Let's blow it up. Yes. <laughs> it's going to destroy our planet if it doesn't move. So, yeah, you know, it's it's 
there's some really good stuff you can do with this sort of concept here. And uh, I'm glad we got something like that in the, in the original series here. Yeah, I was surprised that they had something in here. And they dealt with it in an interesting way. The The directing in this episode and the way that it was written was actually miles above anything else we've seen. They had like scenes with time skips and things that were just so expertly done. They had a, like mm-hmm. they had a very seamless transition when Spock takes the takes the speed juice. Um, they denote the sped up timeline by filming it at a Dutch angle. Yeah, <laughs> and he Spock takes the speed up stuff. They slowly tilt the camera as he goes speed. Things are going weird, and then he leaves, and then they pan the camera back over to McCoy while tilting it back the other way. And then suddenly mm-hmm. he starts moving again and goes, where did he go? Yeah. It's like, uh, where did he's vanished? Yeah, I guess it worked or part of it worked. So weirdly, this was a, this was one of the better filmed directed and written episodes. Yeah. So, you know, uh, yeah, sure. There, there's some uncomfortable uh, things in it, but uh, I'll give it my sale approval. All right, so I think that was everything that we could possibly mine out of this one. I could do more math, but it would take a few minutes. <laughs> well, if you want to do more math, you can tally up points in the galaxy's favorite game show. Woo, yay. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. We've uh, got several contestants here, all competing for some uh, glorious prizes of various sorts. Our first prize is the Hedgehog Speed, a prize uh, and award, which goes to the Sclosians, Kirk, Spock, and Crewman Compton for uh, really going really, 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 really fast. What do they win, Gepwin? They win some of those golden rings. I'm not sure what they do or what purpose they serve because I was a Nintendo kid, but they do something. Well, I I think Crewman uh, Compton probably could have used one before he died, because if you got a ri- at least one ring and you take damage, you don't die. Well, that's why they had the cell damage. Yes. <laughs> it's a lot more Sonic-related than I realized. Holy smokes. Our second award is teaching aliens how to love in a very uncomfortable fashion, which because it goes to Dela, uh, you know, Delia here. Um, but, um, but she... It's very much more on the physical side because she's using speed drugs and abuse in order to get her way and then Kirk kind of going with it. What does she win this creepy? Della wins a book on tantric sex because maybe they need to slow down a little bit. Oh, that's, that's a good idea. You know, go, slow down a little bit and maybe this whole reproduction issue would go away. Hmm. Our third award uh, is I'm a bricklayer, not a doctor. Goes to McCoy once again, this time for creating a magic potion that can speed up or slow down the passage of time whenever you like. Um, I, uh, yeah, I think this would be a good opportunity to reference that one episode of Futurama, but go ahead, Gepwin. Uh, what was he win? McCoy wins. Yeah, he wins 100 cups of coffee, $300 to buy it with. <laughs> McCoy wins an alchemy <laughs> lab because basically they're doing it. Yep. Sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yes. So, but magic potion, potion McCoy, you, you, you're doing all sorts of weird wizardry today. 
Uh, our fourth uh, one is Too Weird to Die, which goes to Scalosians, kind of, because really, if you're that sped up, you should really be dead because of all the things, well, all that math I was mentioned earlier. What do they win, Gepwin? The Scalosians win some cruises, some fancy houses. They're basically double income, no kids forever at this point. And who knows how long they're going to last in that planet. So, you know, may as well enjoy it. It is a pretty swanky planet. I have to give them that. I got, I got one more for you. I know I didn't put my list, but I, it made sense. So one hit point wonder award. Second week in a row we got this one here. It goes to Kirk and Compton because they get, get a little scratch, they're going to die. And, well, Compton does. What do they win, Gepwin? Well, Compton wins the player's handbook because apparently Kirk knows how to play around his limitations HP-wise. He really focused on his defensive capabilities where Compton seems to have gone for some bad offense. You know, one bad roll will get you. Yeah, sometimes uh, it isn't how much you can hit, but how much you can avoid being hit. So uh, take it away, Gepwin. Uh, that's all our prize, our, our prize winners for today. And uh, hopefully uh, those that survived will be able to survive in uh, some fashion, you know, slow or fast, depending on their how they like to go. Yeah, we have no idea how long anyone's living after this, so have a good time, I guess. And thank you for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Next week. So, uh, yeah. No idea. I've seen this one. I have not. At least like two thirds of I it. I have not heard of The Empath. I remember not liking it. Oh, great. <laughs> not screened in the UK, according to torture content. Yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I remember it being very weird, but it's been a while since I've seen it. So maybe a newer, fresher viewing will be an improvement, but uh, I'm, a, I'm a little worried. Let's see. Mute woman. Star is going to go supernova. Attacked by aliens. Gem uh, proves... Mute person proves she is empathic by... Wait, that doesn't make any sense. Proves she is an empath by absorbing Kirk's injuries? Yeah. What? That's yep. not empathic. <laughs> Do they know what empathic means? For various definitions, perhaps? <laughs> I don't know. We'll figure it out next time, right? Yeah, apparently. This this I'm I'm reading I'm skimming the synopsis for keywords and nothing seems to be good. Nothing seems to be good. I'm seeing the word sacrifice a lot. Yeah. Gem, you're not a hologram. Stop trying to get yourself killed. <laughs> Jim and the holograms. <laughs> for, for those playing at home, uh, the ca character's name Jim, apparently. So <laughs> apparently, I don't, I don't like how many guest star names I'm seeing over here. This looks like it's going to be a muddled episode, but I guess we'll find out how much of a muddled mess it is next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, how are you feeling? You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more, and where possible, make sure to rate your experience. 
or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>